0: Father, we do ask that you would be glorified in us today, be glorified in our singing, be glorified in the way in which we listen and apply your word to our lives. We ask that you would move in us and motivate us and compel us to obey your word, to do what your word tells us today. We pray that you would speak to those of us in this room who are not yet saved. We pray that your word would awaken them and they would turn to you in faith and repentance. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us all and compel us all by your spirit to love you and obey you and be glorified in us today. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. Well, it is a wonderful day to be with you, back here studying the word of God together. I so thoroughly enjoy being here on Sunday mornings, worshiping with you. Such a blessing to be together. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to wrap up this section of commands. I should remind you that chapters and verses in the Bible were added after the Bible was written. The the writers of Scripture, other than maybe you could say the psalmist and the Proverbs, uh, they were not written in chapter and verse. Uh, They didn't have a bunch of numbers by that. People added that later so it's easy to get to places in the Bible. And uh, this is one of those unfortunate divisions in Scripture. Sometimes we come across these as we study through the Bible. We come across a spot where it seems like they ended a chapter too early and started the next chapter too early. And um, this is one of those places where I believe this theme spills over into chapter 2. You know, one of the perpetual mischaracterizations of those of us who believe in the doctrines of grace is to say that we who believe in the sovereignty of God reject any notion of human choice or will. I often say that our doctrine is deterministic, that we believe humans are just heartless robots, that God controls and our will and our choices are entirely mechanical. They're they're meaningless, they are an illusion. But that is simply not true. One key that can help you unlock the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is to realize that even the Bible teaches that our will and our choices are involved in God's sovereign plan of salvation and sanctification. John Calvin himself said that the problem is not an issue of Will, the problem is an issue of want. Man has freedom insofar as he freely chooses what he wants. The problem is, according to Scripture, no man truly wants God. No one really wants to repent. So what God does by His grace is He regenerates regenerates us, and He gives us a new desire. And our choice follows. So the Bible is not self-contradictory when it says, choose you this day whom you may serve, and at the same time say, I have chosen you. You didn't choose me. Our choice is predicated on God's choosing us, but we still choose God. It's why the Bible can say, Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but at the same time say, it is he who is working and willing in you for his good purpose. It's why John the Apostle can say in the very first chapter that when we believe in Christ, he gives us the right to become children of God. we got to believe in him. And at the same time, John can say we're not born of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of the will of God. The Bible does not contradict itself. God includes our actions, our decisions in His sovereign will. We do make decisions. We do make an effort to choose God, to love God, to work at our salvation, to come after God. But in the end, we give all glory to God for it is Him who is in us working and willing. Now, we do have to be careful. When we think about our choice of God, we could never say we redeemed ourselves or we saved ourselves. The Bible doesn't talk like that. We have a Savior and a Redeemer, and it's not us. But we are free to talk earnestly and truthfully about our own responsibility when it comes to the gospel. Acts 17.30 says that God commands everyone everywhere to repent. So there's a command, and there are people who respond to that command. There are obedient people. Have you ever thought about that? The gospel itself is a command. Jesus' own words, his summary thought that the gospel writers put his summary thought, his summary sermon as repent and believe. That's an imperative tense. There's a command to the gospel. Well, this is exactly what Peter is doing here as we get to the end of the first chapter. There's all this stuff at the beginning of the chapter about God's calling, God's sovereignty, what God has done on our behalf. He's even elected us. This is something that he's done in his grace and his kindness. It's all his power and his work. But then he lays out commands that we are to pursue. We're going to be looking In a moment, at verse 22, Peter says, "...having purified your souls by obedience to the truth." This word purified is the word made holy. By acting on the faith that God has given you, here's what I want you to do, is what Peter essentially is saying. By acting on the faith that God has given us, we obeyed the truth, we obeyed the gospel, and now having done that, Peter says... Here's how you are to live your life. If you're in pursuit of holiness, if you're in pursuit of the fear of God, here's what it looks like. Holiness, remember, is that difference, that otherliness. We studied back up in verses 14, 15, and 16. Be holy. And remember, holiness is not morality. Holiness is a Godward life. It's being godly. And, of course, it begins by our faith in Jesus Christ. It begins by pursuing a trust in Jesus Christ, and then it continues to mature as we seek to be like God, be holy. From that holiness flows a love of God and should flow a love of people. A love of God represented that next command that we studied last time, fear God, fear the Lord and then love others. Wrapping up his commands here, he gives these commands. One, he says, uh, we're going to see here, love one another. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk. So today we're going to look at these final two imperatives, these final two commands for elect exiles. Let me read this section and we'll study today. I'm going to read verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1 down to chapter 2, verse 3. to you so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the lord is good this is the word of the lord praise be to god some of you folks are old Or getting old quickly like me and you have discovered the value of stretching maybe you have back problems maybe you have an old trick knee some other issue and the gone to the therapist and they teach you how to sit and stand and lay down and do it the proper way and they also teach you how to stretch how to keep your bones and your joints and your tendons and your muscles pliable. And so you've done this. Maybe you've practiced this. You do this maybe in the morning. Maybe you do it before a workout. Better yet, you do it after a workout. You stretch. Stretching, as you know, can be painful. And what you're doing is you're going against the, the the muscle's desire to just shrivel up an atrophy, right? You're, you're stretching it. You're pulling it. You're making it more pliable. And it's painful sometimes. It's not nearly as painful as not stretching and having your Achilles tendon shoot up the back of your leg or having some knee problem or back problem. So you do this, even though it's a little bit painful at the time, you stretch because you know it's good for you. You're working against those old muscles that are getting smaller and, and you need to stretch them out and stretch those tendons. Well, the Greek word for stretch, that good but sometimes painful action, is the root word there in verse 22 where Peter says earnestly in the ESV, earnestly. What I've discovered is that loving the brethren, that's what Peter's talking about here. He's not talking about love, love of lost people in the world. We're to do that. That is a command in the Bible, but that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about loving the brethren, loving the people in the church. It's like stretching. There's something wonderful about that, but there's also something sometimes It's a little bit painful. It's a little bit hard to do. You're stretching against something. Well, you're stretching against that old man, right? That old man that wants to be selfish and self-seeking. That sinful self. There's something about you that doesn't want to do that. If you don't do it, it will atrophy, and that muscle will shrivel up. And it's going to be more and more painful. You guys have probably been in a room where Maybe you or someone else has done this. They come into a room of Christians and say, well, we need to really pray for Sheila. And you say, why don't we pray for Sheila? And they say, well, I'm glad you asked. And they let you know all the things that Sheila has done wrong and all the things that she needs to get right. And gossip launches. It's so natural. It's so easy. Without stretching, without working against it, it just happens so naturally. We have to stretch, and sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's something that's not natural for our old self. We have to fight against it. It's kind of like the discipline of evangelism, right? It's one of those things that if you're not constantly doing it and thinking about it and praying about it and keeping it in the front of your mind, you just kind of forget about it. And when it's it's time to share Christ with somebody, you've forgotten. You're not good at it. You're rusty. This is one of those things that your spirit wants to do. You know it's right, but your flesh is weak. You have to stretch against that flesh. Now, what Peter is saying in this passage is that the most logical outflow of your salvation is to love God. That's the fear of God. It's been planted in your heart. And that you also love one another, the evidence that the seed of the word of God is in your heart and in your life is that you become someone who stretches. You earnestly try to love other saints. Now, I will say this. I, I understand at the Makakilo Bible Church, I'm sort of trying to gild a lily here. You guys are the most loving church I've ever been around. Uh, you guys, there are many of you that far outdo me in terms of sacrifice and love and Letting people love on you, and, and uh, we've been here 13 plus years, and there's never been a church that has been, we've been around that's more loving than this church. So there's so many people that you could probably teach us about love, but none of us here could say, I've reached perfection. There's no need for me to stretch anymore. I've, I've reached the pinnacle of loving the saints. No, all of us need this encouragement. In fact, I imagine many of you, well, even when I just read that passage, you became a little bit convicted about your love, or maybe even a specific situation going on in your life with another believer. Well, we need to go out of our way to love one another. probably begins in our own home. Easiest place to get stagnant and let those muscles atrophy is in a marriage. You just start to do business together rather than love on one another. Then you get salty and crusty and sort of hardened to one another. Now, don't let that happen in your marriage. Don't let that happen in your church. Stretch against that. The fundamental evidence of the Word of God that has been planted in your life is that you love one another. Well, this is the fourth of the five imperatives here. Peter gave his readers all these wonderful blessings at the beginning of the chapter, as I said, these immense joys, verses 3 through 12. And then, therefore, there's that key word, therefore, and then he gives us five imperatives. Let me remind us of these imperatives. The first imperative was have hope. That's verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace. Our joy is not found in this life. Our joy is not found in trying to make things easy in this life. Our joy is found in looking to Christ. We will always be disappointed in the stuff of this world. We will only be encouraged fully by looking to Christ. So we set our minds and hearts on Jesus Christ, the hope of Christ. Then Peter said, number two, be holy. Like I said a minute ago, holiness is otherliness, separateness. It's not moral rectitude. It's certainly not accomplishing a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, it's behind morality. It's the foundation for righteous living. Just like God is holy... And therefore, he is loving and just and he does things righteously. We ought to pursue godliness. And as we pursue godliness, out, the outflow is morality. So that if someone inspects your life, we talked about this in the Old Testament as they came into that old Jerusalem. If they were operating the way that God said, someone could look around as a pagan and say, this place is different, it's clean, things are put together. There's no images of false gods. And they would realize this person serves the true God. So as someone looks at your life as they inspect your life, do they see someone who's different? That's what it means to be holiness and to be holy. Out of holiness flows obedience, ultimately, to those summary commands, to love God and to love others. So that next command in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges, conduct yourself with fear. That next command is to fear God you love god as abba as daddy as father but you also look upon him as something much more mighty and transcendent he's also your judge he dwells in eternity above our time and space and he will ask you to give an account for how you lived your life so that's you can think of that that is the first great commandment that jesus mentions the second great commandment It's to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew uh, Matthew 22. Galatians 5.14, Paul says the whole law is summed up in one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. Incidentally, Paul there in Galatians agrees we have to be on watch. We have to constantly be stretching these muscles and fighting against our old self lest we devour one another, he says, unless lest we chew each other up. You have to strive to walk by the Spirit. And you look at the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians 5. A lot of them are connected to loving other people. Love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. All these are aspects of how we love one another. Well, Peter followed the same pattern. A Godward life, a holy life will be actualized, yes, in your love for God, but also your love for others. So that's command number four, if you're taking notes. Number four, love one another love one another i think the best way to break down this passage again it goes through chapter 2 verse 1 this subject matter 22 verse 22 of chapter 1 to 2 verse 1 is to see it as a positive and a negative sort of like what we saw with dr thomas in colossians put on and put off we ought to Put on certain attributes and put off things that are the opposite. Put off, fight against attitudes and actions there in chapter 2. Put on, verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1. Peter even says there at the beginning of 2, put away. So we get this idea very similar to what we saw with Paul. So, positively, what does he say? Verse 22, let's just study it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, there is that response to the gospel. By the Spirit's power, you have obeyed the gospel. You have purified your soul, the language that Peter uses here. You've you've obeyed the gospel. You've listened to it. You've responded to it. You don't take any credit for it. It was your choice. You chose it freely, but ultimately you say, well, I couldn't choose that without God moving in me. And so ultimately I give all the the glory to God. But I did choose God. I did repent. I did purify my soul and look to God for salvation. If that's what you've done, Peter says, you need to love sincerely with brotherly love one another. Now, who are the one another's here? Well, I think... Obviously it means Christian brothers and sisters, but I think especially in that day and age when each community would only have one church, it's talking about the people in their church. The people with whom they've made covenant, they've come in and and the way the early church would have happened is that someone got saved, they repented of their sins, they would quickly baptize them and that baptism was a kind of a pledge of allegiance, a, a covenant that they would make with one another. And one of the reasons that we have a a covenant, a church covenant, is because we have some of you that come to the church not through salvation. You were saved before. You've moved to the area. But you're doing sort of the same thing. You're entering into this fellowship by making a pledge of allegiance, a a covenant with the people of this church. You're saying, these are the people that God wants me to love and to make a covenant with. I want them to keep me accountable, and I will keep them accountable. There is a mutual love that we make in covenant with one another. And that's what's happening. He's, he's talking to these different groups of people and they would have formed small churches all over those areas in each one of those villages and towns and he's telling them to love one another. You know, back then they wouldn't have traveled from place to place and jobs wouldn't have moved them all over the, the country or, or very much. It wouldn't have happened that, that way. And so they would have been with their church family really the entirety of their life. And he said, I want you guys to love one another. If indeed you've purified your heart, if indeed you've been saved, if, if God has done something great in your life, if He's shown His love for you, then I want you to show your love to one another. The word sincere there means without hypocrisy. Be yourself. Be open and clear and vulnerable and love others, not with that fake Sunday morning cheese you guys know what I'm talking about? Well, hello, brother. Great to see you. Right after you chewed your kids out on the way, right? The Sunday morning cheese. Now, I'm not saying that we need to, you know, you know that kind of person where you say, hey, how's it? And you're expecting them to say, how's it? In response, and then they give you their life story and all the depressing things have happened to them. I'm not saying that we have to do that, but there is this idea that we're authentic with one another. We're real about our life. We are deciding to be sincerely loving to others. We're deciding to actually genuinely try to love others. That's sincerity. Now, I can hear an objection at this point. Someone might say something like this, well, Pastor John, if it's not right for me to If I'm supposed to pursue an authentic love, a sincere love, it wouldn't be right. In fact, it would be hypocritical for me to pretend that I love someone that I really can't stand. It'd be hypocritical for me if someone came up and said hi, for me to actually smile and say hi back. Maybe I ought to tell them what I think about them, lest I be a hypocrite. Now, let me answer this objection in a couple of ways. First of all, this mentality defies the meaning of that word love, agape. Agape. That word love is the word agape. Some of you know there are different words for love in the New Testament. I'm not one of those people who thinks those definitions are hard and fast. They overlap a lot. In fact, in this very passage, they overlap somewhat. He uses philadelphios, and he uses also this word agape almost simultaneously They mean the same thing in some ways. But there is some nuance to these different words. Generally understood, that word agape is a love of the will, a decision, a moral decision that you and I must make. It's not guided by what that person has done for us or what they provide for us. They are someone we love unconditionally because we've simply decided to love them unconditionally. So to say, because I don't want to be a hypocrite, I don't have to love people that I don't like defies that whole notion of agape love, which is what we're commanded to do here. In fact, agape love, isn't that what God did for us? We were his enemies, Paul said. Before Jacob had done anything right or wrong, God said, I set my love on him. That's agape love, and that's what Peter is telling us to do. Make a moral decision based on the fact that before you loved God, you were an obnoxious, unlovable sinner, an enemy of God, and he set his love on on you, therefore you do the same thing for other people." Another reason that you can't get off the hook by using hypocrisy or sincerity and say, well, I don't have to love if I'm not sincere, another answer to that objection is to say he's not asking us to be true to our old self, he's asking us to be true to our new self. That actually can be applied to a lot of commands of Scripture. He wants us to be true not to our old self who's bound in sin and angry and bitter and frustrated. He's asking us to be sincere to our new self, what God has made us anew. In fact, you could sum up a lot of what Paul says and even what Peter says in this passage about commands by saying be true to who you really are, a believer in Jesus Christ, who's been regenerated and saved, who's been loved beyond measure and who will seek to pursue God no matter what. That's essentially what he's saying. He's not saying be true, be sincere to your old self. He's saying be authentic to your new new self. Let me just tell you something. We we humans, we give each other a million reasons to hate one another, right? I give my wife 50 reasons a day to hate me. So what I need from her is not performance-based love. I need agape love. I need unconditional love. That's not just true in a marriage. It's true in a church, right? We step all over each other. We're trying to do ministry. We're trying to work together. Some of you were here yesterday for work day, and probably you had to express some agape love. You had to be patient with someone. You, had to, you were stepping on each other to try to get things done and do the ministry, the work of ministry, and you had to show love for one another. Again, that's why Paul said you have to be careful. You have to stretch. You have to try not to devour each other. It's going to be natural for your old self to rise up when someone offends you or hurts you. And you need to show them agape love. Stretch in a sincere agape love to one another. Now, Peter ties this message to the gospel. Verse 23, love one another. He says, since you have been born again, not a perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, he quotes from the Old Testament, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let me give you a little context. This Old Testament quote was uttered by Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. And it was given to a people who need... Who needed assurance they needed hope that God would keep his loving promises to them these people were in exile in Babylon much like the people in our book here first Peter and so God through Isaiah reminded them everything else will fade and die nations kings even grass and flowers will fade and die but God's Word Remained forever. His saving promises cannot be broken. His love for you will not be broken. What people in Isaiah's day needed was to be reminded that God's saving and loving purposes for them, all those promises that He set His love on them, His choice of them, His election of them, the whole reason they were even in exile, even amidst their sin, God's loving promises would not be violated. So God sent Isaiah to remind them of his love, his agape. It is unconditional. It cannot be changed. Well, that love that you know, we've experienced from God, we discover about that love in the Word of God, in the truth of the gospel, and it's our primary example. It's, throughout the New Testament, it's our primary example of love, is the message of the gospel that we find in the Word of God. So if you really have taken the Word of God and it really has planted itself down deep in you, you know the love of God. You have felt and experienced the love of God. And therefore, you should express that unconditional love as powerful and as permanent as the Word of God itself. You should express that to others. 1 John 2, verse 9, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He gets more serious later on in chapter 4, 7 to 11. Listen to it carefully. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's that seed, that imperishable seed that cannot fade away, that's been planted in your hearts. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If you struggle with loving someone, you meditate on that imperishable seed that was planted in you of the love of God, the message of the word of God expresses to us that God loves me and I sent his son to die for me. And I was not deserving. That love was pure agape. It was unconditional. And I ought to express that unconditional, true, always abiding love to one another. So that's the positive. Love, love like God loved you. Love with that eternal promise of God in your heart. That unfading, unconditional love that God has given to you, you ought to love one another. The negative, that's the put on, the negative, the put off or put away, is there in chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. A gospel-driven love puts away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Let me briefly describe each of these. Malice, that can mean just plain old meanness, grumpiness. It also can mean bitterness. Usually they go hand in hand. Someone who's grumpy is probably someone who's held on to wrongs that have been done to him or her. They've not forgiven someone, and it builds and builds And then they find and look around and they find they feel everyone is an offense to them no one can do anything right proverbs says bitterness dries the bones it ruins you it destroys your health so don't even start don't have malice put that off in your stretching put that away learn to forgive The next word is deceit. The idea is getting something from someone, not being plain spoken, not telling them plainly. It's manipulating them, coercing them, being deceptive. You're using that relationship to get something you want. I'll just say this. I think men really struggle more than women with bitterness with callousness, grumpy old men. There's a movie because we're so good at this. We're grumpy. We can become callous. Nobody's right. No one drives right in this world except for John Eliff. I'm the only one that can perfectly drive down the road. No one can do their lawn. No one can do it the way I do it because I do it right and everyone else does it wrong. That's, a, that's a, a sin that is common to man. Yeah, women have it too, but it's a sin that's common to man. This manipulation, it's a sin, ladies, that's common to ladies. They figure out how to manipulate, how to coerce, how to trick people into getting what they want. Now, again, men can do it as well, but it's a sin that's common among your breed to manipulate to to get what you want out of relationships. That's deceit. Hypocrisy, we already talked about that. The old word is related to putting on a mask, being someone you aren't. Play actors would wear the the mask of the hypocrite. Envy, this is covetousness on steroids. It's, It's wanting something that someone has and also believing that they don't deserve it, and you do. I don't just want what you have. You don't deserve to have it. It goes, it leaks into many areas. It's not just stuff. It's not just a car. It can be a spouse. It can be a job. It can be money. It can be anything. We become envious of one another. And finally, slander. Gossip is wrong because there is a process that God gives us in a church. If someone has done something wrong and sinned, there's a process that, that we deal with that. So we either, we have one of two choices. We either go through that process, Matthew 18 process, or we keep our mouths closed and bear one another's burdens. That's what we are supposed to do. If it's clear sin, we're supposed to do something about it. If it's something that just bothers you and you don't know if it's a sin or not, maybe we just keep our mouths closed. Gossip is not to be something that is named among us. Worse than gossip, though, is slander. When you begin to gossip about somebody, you start to be tempted to slander. You start to put on them maybe some motives. You have no idea what their heart is. And you maybe import into, their, into your language about these people motives. Or things maybe you're not sure they did, but you think they did. This is slander. It's libel. You start to impugn people with sin that you don't even know exists. That is slander. Well, Peter says, in order to express love, you do this stuff, you base it in the gospel, but you also put off these sins. You put off these sins. All right, that's command number four, love one another. Again, if a person looks at your life as they peek into your life and see that you're a new person, a Christian, would they see that you love your church? Would they see... That you love those covenanted with you together. Love one another. By the way, you can't keep this command if you're not a part of a church. You can't keep this command if you're not involved in a church. You don't really know anybody. You just slip in and slip out. Love one another. Love the bride of Christ. All right, let's keep moving. Number five, long to mature. Long to mature. Read with me verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, this idea of spiritual milk, it's mentioned several times, five times actually in the New Testament, twice in 1 Corinthians, twice in Hebrews, and then right here in 1 Peter. Let me give you a little lesson in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study and work of interpretation It's important when you study the Bible to do cross-referencing, right? To find out how is this word or how is this phrase used in the New Testament. And this may inform you of how to understand what this particular author in this particular circumstance is, how they're using it. But as you do that, it's important to remember, again, the purpose of interpretation is to find their meaning, not just a generic meaning. And it's important to remember that other languages are just like English, people don't always use words and phrases in the exact same way every time, no matter what. And this phrase, spiritual milk, is a perfect example of this. Both times in Hebrews and both times in 1 Corinthians, it's kind of a negative. Both times the authors basically say, you need to move beyond spiritual milk. Spiritual milk is just the basic gospel truths. And you've been around, you've been a Christian long enough to move to something deeper, move to the deeper truths of the gospel, move to the more mature things of the gospel. Here you are, you're struggling still with just the basic meaning of the gospel. That ought to be settled in your heart. You ought to be moving to the deeper truths of the gospel. That's essentially what Paul and the author of Hebrews were saying when they used that phrase spiritual milk. So all four of those times in Hebrews and Corinthians with Paul, spiritual milk is sort of used in that negative way, a reference to the basic truths of the gospel that we ought to settle early on in our Christian life and move on to deeper, just like a baby would move from from milk to solid food, we ought to move to the deeper things of Scripture. Clearly here, this is not the way that Peter is using this. He's not doing what Paul, the author of Hebrews, did, scolding them, telling them to move beyond spiritual milk. He's encouraging them to long for spiritual milk, so what could he mean by spiritual milk here? Well, there's a couple words here that help us understand. The first word is an adjective. It says pure spiritual milk. Pure is untainted, unstained. It hasn't turned. It's healthy and clean. It's necessary for life. It's nutrition. The other word is that word spiritual. Sometimes the word spirit is talking about Something that's God breathed, but here the word is logikos, which at its root is logos, or simply the word word. So what I discovered as I was studying this, most scholars say here, Peter is not talking simply about the basics of the Christian life or the basics of the gospel, like Paul was or author Hebrew was, Theology 101. No, the pure word is what Peter was just talking about, the word of God. That never fades away. And Peter said, what I want to happen in your heart is for you to foster a a craving, a longing, a desire, a passion for the Word of God. Those of you taking notes, do something for me. Write out next to this point. Long to mature and write, maybe in parentheses, in the Word. I think that's what Peter is getting at. I want you to mature in the Word. You cannot mature outside of the Word of God. Your sanctification, your spiritual maturity, your growth is directly proportional to your ingesting and understanding the Word of God. Paul told Timothy to be absorbed in his work of knowing and teaching the Word why? 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He says in verse 16, Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, obviously, Paul believed Timothy was saved, and the congregation there were saved. So this word save there means sanctify. You'll mature them. You'll grow them. Later in 2 Timothy, he says to the young man... Don't forget, don't fail, continue in the God-breathed Word, for it is sufficient to equip you for every good work. That's the end of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Then in chapter 4, therefore, preach the Word. Feed the Word of God to your people. That's what's going to mature them. That's what's going to bring them to sanctification. That's what's going to equip them. Let me say it this way, the work of sanctification, that process of spiritual maturity, that process of you becoming more and more godly, more holy, more like Jesus, that does not happen in a vacuum. It happens only in the context of a passion for God's Word. Peter was saying, I want you guys to have a deep longing, a deep craving to mature in the Word of God. Look there in the next phrase, that by it... Clearly, I think he's referring to what he just said, but also back to everything he said about the Word of God. You may grow up into salvation. Again, not meaning getting saved, but growing in your salvation, becoming more sanctified. Sanctified. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, you have tasted this. You've tasted the power of God's word. God's word took a grip on you. It took a hold of you in salvation. It changed your heart. It changed your mind. It it regenerated. You had the power to regenerate you. And if you have felt that, then you need to have a craving for God's word. That is what's going to mature you. I want you guys to listen very carefully. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be a big reader. You don't have to be someone who devours theology books like Spencer Reevely <laughs> just pick up your Bible read a couple verses and think about it it's really all they talking about just pick up your Bible read a few verses think about what these things mean one of the things we do when people become members here is we give them a study Bible a study Bible has the verses on the top of the page, and on the bottom there are notes. Those notes are not infallible Word of God, but they, are, they do help you understand what's being said. Maybe just read a few verses. Read the description. What does this mean? How can I change? How can I be more like Christ? Have that craving to do that. Long to mature in the Word. Well, what a magnificent conclusion to all these Commands, right? What a great encouragement for us exiles. Have hope, be holy, fear God, love one another, and long to mature in the Word. Let's pray that God would grant us obedience to these things. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for your Holy Word. We thank you that it has come to us in our time of need to regenerate us in power. You have raised us to spiritual life, and now you use your Word, read and preached, to sanctify us. Lord, may it move us to love one another today. May it move us to love your word and your truth even more. And Lord, all these commands that you've listed here, may we follow these things with a desire to honor and glorify you. Again, Lord, we pray for those who don't know you here. We pray that you would regenerate their hearts, give them a deep longing to love you and to know you and to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Lord, we pray that they would repent even today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me. This benediction is inspired by Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4. And now to God's elect, whom he has upheld since the day they were conceived, carried since they were born, hear his good promise. I am he. I will sustain you, I will carry you, I will rescue even to your old age, amen.